You're listening to the weekly message at Mosaic Church. For more information or to talk about your own life in Christ, email info at mosaicchurchevans.org. If you'd like to support our ministry, visit our website at mosaicchurchevans.org. Thanks for listening. And now, this week's message. So here's my question for you this morning. Here it is. I'm stealing it from Esau Macaulay, a pastor and professor I follow online. He asks, how can I live as a person of faith in this world that we all know is broken? It's a great question. How can I live as a person of faith in a world we all know is broken? The way he words this question actually makes it feel almost like the question our mission statement answers. Our mission statement, of course, is, in a broken world, we help people become whole through Jesus. And if that's what we do, then how can I live as a person of faith in this world we all know is broken? The scene that comes to mind, and I've been wrestling with a great deal in the last month. I, one of the things I did every single day except two while I was uh, off was I walked three miles. I either walked or rode my bike. And... Um, Every day as I walked, that was, that was a question for me. It's like, how, do I, how am I going to live this from this point on? How do I live this better? And the, the, the scene from Jesus' life that kept coming back to me is a scene from uh, John chapter 21 called The Restoration of Peter. In this scene, I think Jesus gives us an answer to our question but he does it the way, I'm not going to read it yet, um, the way Jesus often does, he, he, he does it the way Jesus often does by answering, I mean, asking a lot of questions. So I want you to look at this scene together. If you've got a Bible and something to write with, you can, you can turn to John chapter 21. It's one of the better known stories. We're not going to talk about it, I mean, we're going to read it just yet, but I just want to kind of set you up for it. Um, it's one of the better known stories in the Bible. In fact, it's one of the very first sermons I ever preached was on this passage. Um, it's where they say Peter is given a gift of grace by Jesus after he's messed up some things, <laughs> the most recent of which was a very public denial of Jesus at a very crucial moment. But here in John 21, Jesus has been resurrected. He's already shown himself to the disciples. In fact, this will be his third appearance to them in, in his resurrected form. So the ones who have been following him, they already know the other side of the story. They already know he's alive, that he's defeated death, that everything he said about himself is true. And knowing all that, Peter still tells the other guys he wants to go fishing, which I have to admit, I think when I preached this story the first time, I preached it as sort of, that's a lame thing to do when you know the, the Savior's uh, been resurrected. Um, I thought it was sort of a cop-out. Why are you going back to fishing when you know that you know that Jesus is your Messiah? But in this last month, while well, I've been... Uh, hold up in my own house for the purpose of my own restoration, I'm thinking maybe that's not such a bad idea for Peter. Maybe this decision to do something that doesn't take a lot of brain space ends up being a good way to process big things that have happened in your life before you go on to new things. So that maybe stopping or waiting or resting is the first step in restoration. If you're, if you're bone tired, don't miss this point. <laughs> so they're out there fishing. And they're doing what they're good at. 
And Jesus shows up to them on the shore. It's exactly where they were when they first met Jesus, way back in the first part of the, of the story of Jesus collecting his disciples. And Jesus does the same thing this time that he did last time. He creates the same fishing miracle he did that first time he met Peter when he said to Peter after helping him miraculously catch a boatload of fish, from now on you will be fishing for people. So this time, years later, post-resurrection, post-faith lapses, Peter recognizes the miracle. He has seen this before, and maybe he even remembers the prophetic call to fish for people. So he jumps out of the boat, he swims to shore to meet Jesus, and this time Jesus feeds him, literally makes a meal for him right there on the, on the beach for the whole group. And for Peter, this is a moment. I want to read this moment to you from a new translation. During July, I read the whole New Testament in a translation just released by Scott McKnight. It's called the Second Testament, if you want to look it up. It's, it's a raw translation. He tried as best as possible to translate the Greek word by word. So it, it, as he describes it, as, uh, it feels a little crunchy. It takes a minute to read because it's not the usual words. Um, and, and it's, you know, sometimes feels awkward. And so it can make the familiar stories feel odd, but it can also make them feel very, very fresh. And this one is one of those. Um, I mean, often when I was reading this, I was left stopping and thinking about the nuances at work in Greek words. I actually had a chance to talk to the author about this. I mean, it's just so interesting how translators translate and how the Holy Spirit completes the thought. Because there really is no one-for-one one from Greek to English. Greek words have so much more meaning than what our English words often give them. So I'm going to read to you this little bit. John chapter 21, 15 to, sev uh, to 17. In um, this version, and since your version and my version don't actually correlate, I'm going to ask you to do something. Um, it's kind of traditional in the in the church of Jesus Christ, you stand for the reading of the gospel. So will you stand? And I just want you to listen. Therefore, when they dined, Jesus says to Simon Petros, Simon of Johannes, that's John, do you love me more than these? He says to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He says to him, feed my lambs. He says to him again a second time, Simon of Johannes, do you love me? He says to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He says to him, pastor my sheep. He says to him a third time, Simon, son of Johannes, do you love me? Petros was pained that he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he says to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus says to him, feed my sheep. And this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. So I love in this version that, well, even in your version, Jesus bounces back and forth between Simon and Peter in this conversation, between the man he met and the man he commissioned to fish for people. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen this cartoon or not. And I don't know if, can you see it? I just love this cartoon. Um, and the top, he's at his, the, 
that's Peter, Simon, he's gone to the printer, and it says, here's your order, sir, a thousand business cards saying, Simon, the fisherman. Later that day, Jesus is talking to him and says, Simon, from now on, you will be called Peter. How many of you have thrown away three quarters of a thousand box car of business cards? Landfills are full of barely used cards, of barely used boxes of business cards we made when we thought we knew who we were, only to find out we might not have known what we thought we knew about ourselves. And it seems sort of like Jesus uses this moment to compare the Simon who used to be with the Petros who has been called to fish for people. And in so many words, he asks him, which is it going to be? Do you love me more than these? We don't actually know what the these is that Jesus is talking about. Is it fish or is it the, the stability and comfort that fishing brings? Is it the other guys? Or is it anything and everything that might stand in the way of a man doing what he has been called to do by the Lord of the universe? Probably the answer is yes. It's a little bit of all that. Do you know what your these is? I mean, if Jesus asked you that question, do you love me more than these? What would immediately come to your mind? What's the these he would be talking about with you? Because my suspicion is that more than these ends up being the problem for a lot of us. Early on in my reading of this translation of the New Testament, I discovered something. The word faith in the Bible is translated from a Greek word, pistos. But that word has multiple meanings depending on context. In the typical New Testament, NIV or any other version, it's just translated as faith, never mind the meaning. But in the Greek, there's actually three different ways to translate it. Um, depending on the context, it can mean belief, as in I have faith in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I have a salvation faith. But then there's this other use of that term. Paul uses it in this way a lot to mean allegiance. That's different than salvation level belief. This is a long obedience in the same direction kind of faith, a loyalty expressed over time. So on one end of the faith spectrum, we've got belief, a salvation level belief. And on the other end of the spectrum, we've got allegiance. But then there's this third idea in the Greek, the word pistos. It means trust. And when I saw that, that answered a lot of questions for me. <laughs> Do you hear the difference between these three ideas? Belief and allegiance, they can be ideological, but trust, that's relational. So my these, my these, has a lot to do with that other one, the trust one. Like, like, do you love me, Carolyn, more than you need to withhold trust so you can keep control? <laughs> I'm just talking to myself right now. Y'all are welcome to listen in. I noticed as I read through the Gospels that it's this sense of the word that shows up most often when Jesus is talking about faith. And when Paul's talking about it, he's like, man, we've got to push through. We've got to stay loyal. Are you allegiant to the gospel? But when Jesus is talking faith, he's asking, do you trust me? 
Do you trust me enough to set everything, all your these aside and follow me so that there's nothing left between us? That's when I had to admit to myself when I realized that my issues with faith are not usually with the ideology stuff. It's not even with walking out my allegiance to it. I've learned I can, I, can, I can push through when my cup is not only empty, but there's a hole in the bottom. I can keep pushing. My faith issues boil down to something more relational and intimate and vulnerable. That's what Jesus is asking Simon Peter on that beach. That guy living two worlds at once, both Simon and Peter. <laughs> Do I trust Jesus enough to let go of the other things I'd rather trust more? Things that tend to put me at arm's length, not just from Jesus, but also from people Jesus loves. <laughs> I just want to share the pain. Because <laughs> I suspect I'm not alone. Jesus will go on in this scene to tell Peter that following the heart of Jesus into people's messed up lives will mean going places Peter might not want to go. He'll tell him, you used to make all your own decisions like you knew everything and had it all under control. But now, this is the, Carolyn's version that I'm reading right now. But now that your allegiance is to the kingdom of God, you will end up going places you don't want to go. But if you love me, Peter, then even when your default setting is not to trust, I'm asking you to trust me enough, enough to love the people I gave my life for. How can I live as a person of faith in a world that we all know is broken? Or maybe another way of wording that question. Do you love me? I suspect the answer is rooted in this idea of trust and how it's connected to faith in Jesus and love for Jesus. Do I trust Jesus more than these things that make me feel self-sufficient, more than the things I know? In a 12-step world, the first step would be to admit that I am powerless over my ability to trust God and trust people and that my lack of trust, while I have assumed it as a means of maintaining control actually has the opposite effect in that it spins my life out of control as a follower of Jesus. <laughs> Do you love me? Jesus asks. Do you love Jesus more than things that give you the illusion of control? I want you to sit with that question a minute. If this was a workshop, I'd have you turn to each other and talk that question out. But half of you would never come back. <laughs> Do you love Jesus more than things that give you the illusion of control? Peter answers this question with a confident yes, but Jesus is like, you idiot. And so he asks him again. One of the other things I love about Scott McKnight's translation is that he uses the word idiot a lot in here. There is, there is a literally a Greek word that can be translated as idiot that more civilized people chose not to use in their civilized translations. So this is now my official new favorite translation. <laughs> Do you love me? 
pastor my sheep. What does it say in your translation? Tend or take care of? Shepherd? Huh? Feed? I love that he uses in this translation the word pastor. It's not the usual translation, but it's, it is the literal translation of the Greek word used in this scene. It's, a, it's the verbal form of the word pastor, poimene. Jesus actually says, pastor my sheep. It's the only time this word shows up in this form in the New Testament, and that's worth noticing. The word has been chosen intentionally and unusually to make a point. Jesus isn't talking about a title or a vocational position. He's talking about a way of entering into a relationship with people Jesus loves. So the word literally means to shepherd or to pastor, to lead, to guide, to nourish, or I love this one, to supply the requisites for the soul's need. To supply what's needed for somebody whose soul has a need. Shepherd my sheep. Pastor them, nourish their souls. I wonder what it feels like for you when you have been pastored well. I, I have felt myself pastored well in the month of July. What does it feel like for you? Just give me a couple of things. Comforting. Comforting. To be heard. Whoa. It's a good one. Nurtured. Safety. Transparency. You'll notice that in any of, to be, to be pastored well, if any of those descriptions are what it means to be pastored well, none of those require a degree or an ordination. In fact, Peter had neither of those. <laughs> everybody can pastor everybody. So I have to tell you about a dream I had earlier this month. In that dream, I ran into another pastor from Evans. You know, you know when you're early on, like after, yeah, probably students know this, after you finish school for the first two weeks after you finish school for the summer, you start having, you keep having school dreams. You know how that is? For the first couple of weeks, I was having church dreams. So I ran into this pastor from Evans, and he was pastoring a church not too far from Mosaic, and as we were catching up, and it's not Christ the King, just in case you wonder, um, he described for me these amazing ministries his church was doing. And one of them, he described, sounded just like women of worth. I mean, basically, they copied our ministry. And from the way they described it, they were having all kinds of success. And in my dream, I was feeling that unholy jealousy I can also sometimes feel in real life. But I'm a pastor, and I know how pastors exaggerate. So I asked if they were having success finding people, actual real people to serve. And he said, well, we have a couple of people we're mentoring right now. And then he named them. And one of them was someone I knew. It was someone we had served years ago at Mosaic. Someone who had been hard to love. And I probably need to say right now, so you don't wonder, no one in this room is that person. You don't even know this person unless you are a real old-timer. This was a very old tape that was playing in my dream. So in my dream, I thought, well, okay then. If that's who you've got, then I'm great with that. You can have them. I don't want to serve that one anymore. I'm not proud of that thought. 
But I need to tell you as your pastor that sometimes thoughts like that show up in the minds of people who happen to be pastors. We want to love Jesus like Jesus loves. And we want to feed his lambs all the time without fail. We all, all of us want to be the Mother Teresas of whatever people we're with. But no one does that all the time without fail. That's not real life. Maybe you've even had that thought. Maybe you've even had that thought and it's caused you to leave one church and go to another church where all those people are perfect. (laughs) So standing there, that's right, you came to this church. So standing there in front of that person in my dream, I had that thought. Well, if if, if that's who you've got in your program, then help yourself because that person drives me nuts. Right after I dreamed that thought, I woke up. It was too early to get up, but I couldn't go back to sleep because that dream had me stirred up. So I opened my phone and I started reading an article written by the pastor of Brentwood Baptist Church. That's one of those mega Baptist churches in Nashville, Tennessee. The pastor who wrote this article, he's stepping down from ministry after uh, being the senior pastor of Brentwood Baptist for a long time, so he can dedicate more of his time to working with young pastors. And he said in this article, he has a real concern for pastors right now that, that maybe too many pastors have lost their heart for people, especially in recent years, and he blames the maddening trifecta of pandemic politics and the polarization of, of culture. I agree. I think those things have left many of us, pastors or not, with an inability to trust God and by extension with an inability to be vulnerable with each other. The polarization of American culture has left us with a kind of indifference toward sheep, a numbness toward anybody that we're not already really comfortable with. In other words, a numbness toward anybody who's not like me. And reading that, I could see what had bubbled up in my subconscious in that dream. And I knew it was more than a dream because I went straight from the dream to that article. I knew that that dream was more than just a dream, that that, that it was something prophetic happening. There is a wear and tear that comes with allegiance to Jesus while living in a broken world. So I'm wrestling with that question. How can I live as a person of faith in this world that we all know is broken? And then Jesus says... Well, I'll tell you how. Learn how to pastor people. Learn how to comfort them. Learn how to hear them. Not just stand in front of them and smile, but listen. Learn how to nurture them. Learn how to help them feel safe. There's a sweetness to Jesus' answer. Pastor my people. Lead them, nourish their souls, love them without agenda, which is to say that, yes, the world is broken, but listen to me. This may be the most, for me, important thing I say to you. We don't have to treat a broken world roughly. We don't have to expect of it what it cannot give. In a broken world, there is room for compassion and a gentle approach. We can be clumsy with all the rest of it. But, if we, are, but we are still the church when we pastor God's people well. 
Isn't that just what Jesus was trying to say to Peter on that beach? Yeah, you're screwed up, Peter, but it's a broken world. So have a little breakfast and let's get back at it. (laughs) I know who you are. I know who you are, Peter. Sit down here at my table and let me tell you next to my fire that you are not a fisher of fish. You are a fisher of people. I know your heart got wounded, but friend, it's okay. What a beautiful prophetic word, full of compassion and grace. Do you hear Jesus, my fellow pastors? Will you turn to somebody right now and say, hey, pastor. I want to say to you this. There needs to be a church in the world that cares tenderly. That loves lost people enough, not just to go after them, but to hang on to them long past good sense. To be patient with them while they figure things out. That trusts Jesus enough to breed both belief and trust that is confident enough in Jesus' power to redeem, that we can confidently call out the best in people and wait for Jesus to do his thing. So there needs to be a church in the world like Mosaic. Let's read this together. In a broken world, we help people become whole through Jesus. That's what we do. And it is an audacious claim that we can do for people what Jesus did for Peter that day on the beach. As resurrection era followers of Jesus, we also have access to the powers of restoration, real restoration, not just of people, but of the world. So this is what it means to be part of Mosaic. It means nourishing the souls of people God loves. How are you doing that? Because he didn't believe your first answer, and he's not real sure about your second answer, so he's going to ask you again. Do you love me? It's this third question that breaks Peter's heart. He's like, you know I love you, Jesus. What do you want? I'll tell you what I want. If, if, if you want to help people become whole through Jesus, Peter, it's okay to let your heart get broken. If you want to help people become whole through Jesus, pastors, It's okay to let your heart get broken. Because it's into a broken world that Jesus came, which means that for Jesus, a broken world is not a hopeless world, but a world starving for restoration. And that isn't something we have to stand helplessly by and wait for. It can happen right now. N.T. Wright says, there's there's coming a time when God will restore all things. And though that day will be truly wonderful, it can be anticipated with times of refreshment in the present. 
right? It says the ultimate promise, Romans 8.21, is that there will be a final restoration of all things, not just this person here and this person here. And, oh, look, this guy over here got his behavior tweaked so he's not quite such a mess when he shows up. The whole thing There will be a final restoration of all things. That promise is firmly rooted in the Jewish prophets. But what has changed now, Wright says this, is that the final restoration has already happened to Jesus himself. What God is going to do to the whole creation, he has already done for Jesus in raising him from the dead. So, this is great news. We don't have to wait. We don't have to wait. When people turn away from the life they have led and the wicked things they may have done and they turn back to God, the the technical term for all that is the solid good old-fashioned word repentance, then times of refreshment, feed my sheep refreshment, can come from the very presence of the Lord himself, a kind of advanced anticipation of the full and final refreshment that we can expect when God completes the work at last. Every little time you stop and you hear someone, you show someone a little compassion, you tell them, who Jesus is and what he's done for you. You show a little patience with somebody who you happen to think is pretty messed up while they're thinking you're pretty messed up. (laughs) Every single time you do that, you are participating in the final coming, the in-breaking kingdom. This is a long quote, but I want to finish with this last bit from N.T. Wright. This notion of refreshment. Isn't that a great word? Isn't that a great word? Here's Jesus sitting on the beach. Sit down. Have a little refreshment. This notion of refreshment, though itself is unusual in the New Testament, is by no means unusual in Christian experience. As again and again, in worship and sacrament, in reading the scriptures, in Christian fellowship and prayer, in feeding the sheep, we taste in advance just a little bit of the coming together of heaven and earth, the sense that this is what we were made for. Throw away your old business cards. This is what we were made for. So Gordon, the pastor, and Julie, the pastor, and Joe, the pastor, and Terry, the pastor, who also is the one responsible for making sure these chairs are perfectly situated every week. You pastor me when you do that, Terry. This is what we are made for, the new world which we shall finally enjoy. It's there, available, ready for all who seriously seek it. It's what we were made for. Yeah, it's a broken world. But Jesus has always been in the restoration business. It is a broken world. But we can be refreshed through Jesus whose whole mission is to see people made whole 
one by one, until the whole world is made whole through Jesus. You know, there's that funny thing that people say, like school teachers say, the school would be great if there were no students here. And librarians say, this library would be great if there were no people showing up to mess up my books. Somewhere in the back of our minds, in the subconscious, I think that most of us think this world would be great except for the people. Or like when Jesus comes back, he's going to wipe all the people out. Friends, we are the in-breaking kingdom. We who are saved are little Christs walking around, exposing the kingdom of God to other people. How can I live as a person of faith in this world that we all know is broken? I've got four things for you to write down. That does not mean I'm going to go 20 minutes on each of the next four. So write them. Write them now. First, we can start by dealing with our own trust issues. Our trust in Jesus, our trust in people, so that nothing stands between us and the call to pastor people. Do not use your trust issues as an excuse to harden your heart. So start by dealing with your own trust issues. Number two. We can deal honestly with the places where our hearts have grown tough, indifferent toward the brokenness. Maybe it happens in your dreams or maybe it happens in the back of your head when you walk up to somebody, man, I sure hope that person never comes to my small group or that person never shows up in my church or thank God they're gone. Or, or, and that may even happen in your own family. <laughs> Or your workplace. But what if that's the sheep? What was that? Where our hearts have grown tough. Man, that means a lot to me that you're asking me to repeat it. We can deal honestly with the places where our hearts have grown tough. I mean, that's an inventory is what that is. Three, find one way in your life to nourish souls. Find one way to do that. So this, this is like one of those things where you start thinking, oh, now she's just trying to get the church to act like the church and everybody has served someplace. No, I'm just telling you, this is how the kingdom of God works. We pastor each other, okay? I didn't write it. I'm just reporting. So find some place to serve. Find somebody to pastor. How are you fishing for people? Because I'm giving you a new business card. And then fourth, and this is a big one, and we're actually going to, we actually have something planned this fall to help equip you in this way. Learn to gospel your story. Learn to gospel your story. Scott McKnight uses that term rather than evangelize. He uses the word gospel as a verb. It's telling, and this is how he, this is how he defines gospeling, telling people about Jesus and who you think he is. 
So in October, you know, we're having a global impact celebration. And again, you're thinking she's just promoting the thing the church is doing. But no, I actually believe this stuff, y'all. That's why we put it out there. We do this stuff because we believe this stuff. So in October, on the Saturday of the global impact celebration, we're going to do a workshop on gospeling. And help you think about how, how, are, how, do you, how, are, how has God wired you specifically to tell people about Jesus and who you think he is. And, and, um, and we're going to use the mission partners that have come in who do this, you know, voc- vocationally. This is what they do. And they're going to help us think about it. How do you contextualize your own gospel story? So we're not gospeling until we've introduced people to Jesus. I want you to hear that. We are not gospeling until we have introduced people to Jesus. So to pastor somebody well, it means being nice to them, yes, and being compassionate, yes, and being comforting, yes, but you've not finished your gospeling until you have introduced them to Jesus. That's what it means to feed sheep, to to nourish souls. It is to share with others how Jesus has restored our lives just as surely as he has restored Peter's life. We we stand on that beach. (laughs) We are given that same grace. We have that same call, that same business card. Do you love me? Peter says, then gospel my people. The night Jesus gave himself up for us, it was another meal. It was just another one of those things that he does. He, he took some bread and he broke it. And he, he fed his friends. He gospeled them. This is my body. This is all of me. All of me. So take all of me into you. Because it's a broken world. So here's a broken body. So you can be whole through Jesus. After supper, he took the cup. And he gave thanks to his Father in heaven for it. And he, and he gave it to his friends. And he said, drink from this, all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant. And it's sort of a line you cross that you can't uncross. Once it's in you, and it's coursing through your veins, you are not the same person anymore. So drink my blood, he said. Take into you my DNA. Be somebody different. Be somebody different. Because it's a broken world. But here's a broken body so you can be whole through Jesus. Thank you, God.
Thank you. Will you set everything aside right now and just close your eyes? And let me ask you the questions. You're here on the beach with Jesus, and he wants to know. Tim, do you love me? Margaret, do you love me? Mark, do you love me? And what exactly do you need to lay down? Where is it you're not trusting me? And now you've given him an answer, and Jesus himself knows that answer doesn't go deep enough. Now he's trying to get to the very bottom of your hurt, the very end of your brokenness. And so he asks again, do you love me? Connor, do you love me? Sharon, do you love me? Jess, do you love me? And he says, yeah, I know you think you do. But I'm not quite sure you are ready yet to go places you don't want to go. Do you love me? Julian, do you love me? Don, do you love me? Sean, do you love me? If your answer is yes, then let your heart get broken for people. Let your heart get broken for people. As we sit around tables this afternoon, listen, be compassionate. Tell that little judgmental voice to shut up and go home. Tell it, this is biblical, that it's an idiot. The person with whom 
you're conversing is someone Christ died for. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our message. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you. Visit us or check out our website at mosaicchurchevans.org for more information. May God bless your day.